from Hayama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. John Abramson will join us to discuss Overdosed America. So, stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. to the Grox Science Show. Well, we are all constantly inundated by pharmaceutical advertisements touting the latest breakthrough drugs. However, the information that we receive may be heavily biased and less than optimal for our physical well-being. Is America being overdosed by the pharmaceutical industry? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. John Abramson. Dr. Abramson is a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School and has practiced family medicine for more than 20 years. He's the author of the best-selling book, Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, which has recently been re-released in paperback, and he joins us today to discuss this issue for a general audience. Dr. Abramson, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Charles, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, well, certainly our pleasure. Just exactly what is the issue here, and uh, how did you as a physician become uh, interested in this? Medical science has been transformed over the past 30 years from a public good into a commodity. And what's happened is the knowledge that doctors trust and have to trust, and the knowledge that's available to the public and to policymakers and even to legislators about the medicines that we take is produced almost entirely by the drug companies. And it's very clear that their primary responsibility is not to the health of the American people, but to their own shareholders to maximize their profit. So what we've got is this enormous disconnect where doctors and the public are turning to the latest developments in medical science to find out how they should best protect their health or repair their health, when in fact what's happening is that medical science is being produced to make more money. The consequences, Charles, are enormous. In the United States, we are spending twice as much as the average industrialized country per person on health, and yet the average American lives two and a half years less in good health than the citizens of those other countries. The most stunning statistic I know is that over the five-year period from 1998 to 2003, if the mortality rate in the United States for preventable deaths deaths that are preventable by good medical care, had gone down as much as the average of the top three European countries, which spend half as much as we do, 100,000 fewer Americans would be dying every year. So we're spending twice as much money, and 100,000 more Americans are dying every year. This is like the ultimate issue of patriotism. It's like having 33 9-11s every year because of the dysfunction in our health care system. You're arguing the profit motive of the pharmaceutical industry. There are a whole lot of problems going on. The insurance industry is skimming money off the top, for sure. The hospitals are, whether they're for-profit hospitals or not-for-profit hospitals, they act to maximize their profit, for sure. But I think the key issue that is derailing American medicine is the reliance of physicians and the public 
on medical knowledge that's commercially generated. So it's the pharmaceutical industry, it's the medical device industries, and it's the health insurance industry for sure. What we've done is we've turned over the intrinsic values of our healthcare system to the marketplace. And the market isn't interested in our health. The market is interested in maximizing its profits. The problem is that unraveling the medical science is so complex that virtually all the companies and the doctors and the patients have to rely on the information that they're getting from the medical industry in order to make optimal decisions. That's what Overdosed America is about, the book. And why I wrote it is, I was a family doctor on the clinical faculty at Harvard, chairman of a Department of Family Practice here in the Boston area, and realized that the journals that we read are no longer trustworthy. What tipped me over, my tipping point, was reading in the New England Journal of Medicine about the arthritis drug Vioxx and in the Journal of the American Medical Association about the arthritis drug Celebrex, reading articles in both of those journals showing that these expensive new arthritis drugs were superior to older drugs and we doctors should be prescribing them. And in fact, we doctors were prescribing about $5 billion a year worth of those two drugs. And then finding the evidence on the FDA website in August of 2001 that showed that Vioxx was a dangerous drug, that Vioxx was not a superior painkiller when people didn't know what they were taking, it was no better than naproxen or a leave over the counter, and that it was significantly more dangerous. In fact, the FDA reviewer who looked at the cardiovascular complications, the rates of heart attacks and strokes and blood clots in Vioxx compared to a leave, said that based on the rate of cardiovascular complications, one would conclude that a leave was the treatment of choice, not Vioxx, except Vioxx costs $3 a pill and a leave costs $0.10 per dose. So when I realized that the medical journals themselves that we have to trust, that we're taught to trust, were misleading me and my colleagues, and I couldn't get this message out, then I decided to leave practice and write a book to explain to the American people, not the doctors, but the American people, how they're being misled to rely on these medications to maintain their health instead of being counseled to do the kinds of things that keep you healthy, which actually account for 70% of our health. And as you mentioned, it's not just patients that are being misled, it's the doctors as well. That's the scary part, Charles. It's the doctors as well. So you hear these ads on TV and for sleeping pills or restless leg syndrome or cholesterol-lowering drugs or whatever, and they give you the drug and they show the pretty scenery and they play the pleasant music and then they say, here are the side effects. They can cause liver failure and heart failure and changes in your mental status and death and all cancer and all these other things. And then they say, ask your doctor. The problem is that the doctors are getting fed a bill of goods the same way that we television viewers are getting fed a bill of goods. And the real problem is that it doesn't look like health care reform is going to address this problem of the corruption of our medical knowledge. I do a lot of consulting in lawsuits against drug companies. I consult for plaintiffs' attorneys. So I get to see a lot of secret, confidential corporate documents. And you see over and over again that the drug industry understands that marketing a drug doesn't mean advertising it on TV, and it doesn't mean just sending the drug reps out, the cute drug reps in the short skirts or the well-tailored suits out to uh, doctor's offices, that marketing is influencing the totality of ways that doctors receive information. 
So, for example, doctors have to go to about 50 hours of continuing education every year to maintain their state license. The drug companies have virtually taken over the continuing medical education industry. So when doctors go to get educated about what to do to patients' bodies, most of that information is sponsored by the drug industry. And the drug companies know that doctors rely upon medical journals so that the marketing plans for drugs will include a publication strategy to place articles in medical journals in ways that doctors have been taught to trust. And then the drug companies buy reprints of these articles, and they have the drug reps bring the articles. The drug company influence on medical journals has gotten so intense that the current editor of The Lancet, which is the most respected European medical journal, and the just former editor of the British Medical Journal, which is the second most respected European medical journal, told the New York Times, listen to the poetic economy of this language, told the New York Times that the medical journals have devolved into information laundering operations for the pharmaceutical industry. That's how far it's gone, Charles. And the problem here is that the doctors don't understand that the information that they're accepting at face value as unbiased science is being fed to them because of its commercial impact, not its health impact. The pharmaceutical industry is also one of the prime supporters and funders of biomedical research. That has changed radically over the past 30 years, so that 30 years ago, pretty much any well-respected researcher could get funding from the National Institutes of Health to do research, medical research, and therefore did not have an obligation to be researching commercial products. But now about 85% of the clinical trials that are done are funded by the medical industry. So when doctors get this information, it's heavily biased. The odds are five times greater that these commercially funded trials will conclude that the sponsor's drug is the treatment of choice compared to non-commercially funded trials of exactly the same drugs. So what's happening, Charles, is that doctors are basically getting infomercial quality information, but they're trusting it as if it's unbiased science. And that's leading us to use new and expensive drugs, sometimes dangerous drugs. And the most important thing is that it's causing our medical knowledge to grow in the direction of corporate profits instead of the direction of making us healthier. And thus, we as a country, as I said in the beginning, we as a country are spending twice as much money per person as the other industrialized countries on health care, and Americans have by far the worst health. Well, how is it really that we combat this as a major problem in the medical industry systemically? Right. I think that there's one pivotal point, and if we could get this, and I would ask your listeners to write your senators and congressmen and tell them that this has to become part of health care reform. Because President Obama has proposed a medical review board funded with $1.1 billion to determine which drugs and therapies are the most effective and the most cost-effective. And that's a real good idea. We're virtually the only industrialized country that doesn't have such a board. We need a board. But in order to determine which drugs are best, the proposal is that this board will review the medical literature to determine what the medical literature says, that medical journals say, are the best drugs to use. The problem is, as we've been talking about, is that the medical literature is so heavily influenced by industry 
that you can't make the determination that way. And clearly what we need to do is we need to empower such a medical board so that if wrong information or information is withheld from one of the drug companies or medical device companies about their product, there need to be civil and criminal penalties for the misrepresentation or withholding of scientific evidence the same way there are civil and criminal penalties for misrepresentations in financial statements of corporations. It's not understood, Charles, that the science that's produced has the same impact on our health as financial statements have on investors' decisions. And there ought to be the same responsibility of corporate executives to ensure that information is complete and accurate. Certainly the pharmaceutical industry also has such power that they've uh, suppressed publications that could be critical of some drug that is about to be released. We see that over and over again. And because of my work in litigation, I get to see the totality of the science that these companies did, not just what they let be seen. And we see it over and over again that studies that come out negative or even harmful are withheld. There's a, a case that I'm getting involved in now, but the information is public about a pair of antidepressants called Celexa and Lexapro. And on these two drugs, there were two studies done about the effect of Celexa, which is the earlier drug, the effect of Celexa on children and adolescents. One study showed that it was effective, and that study was published in a medical journal, and the author of that study was paid to go around speaking and talking about the positive results of her study. The other study showed that Celexa not only was not effective in children and adolescents who had depression, but actually tripled their risk of suicidal behavior. And that study was kept hidden. So doctors looking at the medical literature would have concluded reasonably that this drug is safe and effective for kids and adolescents who are depressed, when in fact the company knew that one of its studies showed that it tripled the risk of suicidality and kept that information from doctors and from the public so that we couldn't know. There are all these drugs that keep coming out, yet they really aren't much of an improvement. Is there a trend towards wanting the newest, best drug? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that we have advertising of drugs in the United States, and I think it's very important to remember that the United States and New Zealand are the only two countries that allow direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs. But that drugs can be advertised drives a lot of the development of these drugs. So a perfect example is the new generation of sleeping pills, which started to come out somewhere around 2000. Well, between 2000 and 2006, the number of prescriptions for sleeping pills increased 60%, largely based on the marketing of these drugs. And I'm sure all of your listeners can recall the butterfly flying around and people sleeping so peacefully. Well, it turns out that these new sleeping pills are no better, or if anything, just infinitesimally better than the older drugs that are available as generics, whose patents have worn off, so nobody's marketing them. And the only thing that's new and important about these new sleeping pills is that the companies who own the patents have a monopoly on the marketing, and therefore they can advertise and create the illusion of the drug being superior, when in fact it's virtually the same as the older drugs, except it costs 10 or 20 times more. 
but when they advertise it, they can make money because they create this impression of superiority, this branding of the drug in our mind, motivate people to ask their doctors for these drugs by name. So what we get in the United States in particular is the marketing of these drugs that have little or no advantage over older drugs that are tried and true, that are far less expensive. And all of this is driven simply by gloves-off capitalism, by gloves-off marketing, which has to do all about money and none about either health or people's well-being, except we've all been trained to think uncritically that if it's medical science, it must be true, and therefore what they're offering us is superior. That's what Overdosed America is about, and I wrote it for the public. I didn't write it for doctors because I knew that doctors weren't ready to hear this message, but there are a lot of people out there who are understanding in their gut that this is wrong, that something's wrong when they go to their doctor's office and and see all these clocks with drug names on them and see the drug reps there and see all the drug ads on the walls, that something has gone wrong with the fundamental mission of American medicine. And that's what Overdosed America is about. It's about how it's happened. It shows how the magicians do their tricks. And the most important thing, Charles, is it explains to people how they can take back responsibility for their own health. Indeed, there also seems to be this pervasive notion in the culture of the uh, one pill quick fix and less so on the idea of preventative health care, eating right, and just exercising. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a whole lot of forces that contribute to that. I, I think we all would like to take a pill and get a quick fix and have a childish, fantastical idea that that might be available if only science were good enough. But that desire to have that quick fix is now being exploited. So the truth is, Charles, that 70% of our health is determined by how we live our lives, not by what pills we take, not by what medical care we get, but the life choices we make. And let me give you a good example. This is from the Nurses' Health Study. Women who do five healthy habits have 83% less heart disease than women who don't do those habits. The habits are routine exercise, eating a healthy Mediterranean-style diet, not smoking, drinking in moderation, and maintaining a reasonable body weight. Women who do those things have 83% less heart disease, yet only 3% of American women do those five things. So there's an enormous opportunity to have a positive impact on American women's health for virtually no money. And by the way, it will decrease the risk of osteoporosis and decrease the risk of stroke and decrease the risk of depression and decrease the risk of breast cancer, diabetes, and myriad other problems. It will improve by doing those five healthy things. But what are we doing to prevent heart disease in women? What we're doing is convincing healthy women to get their cholesterol levels measured and to take cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. Now, that's because the cholesterol-lowering guidelines in the United States tell doctors to do that. They make doctors do that. Now, I I co-authored a piece that was published in The Lancet that shows that the cholesterol guidelines are simply lying about this, and they say they're lying. They cite seven studies that they claim show that women who don't already have heart disease or diabetes, who have high cholesterol and are at risk of heart disease, benefit from taking a cholesterol-lowering statin drug. 
But not one of those seven studies shows that. But why did I find that out and other doctors didn't find that out? Because I left practice to write a book, and that gave me the time to look at all these studies. So the seven studies that the guidelines claim prove that women who are at risk, who take a statin benefit, don't. And in fact, in the 284-page, the long version of the National Cholesterol Education Guidelines, at the end of the guidelines, they say this quote. It's mind-boggling. They actually say that clinical evidence to support these recommendations for women is generally lacking, and the recommendations are based on extrapolation of data from men. They actually say that they're lying in the front of, this, of the guidelines when they say the evidence shows that statins reduce the risk of heart disease for women. And we know that women and men are very different in terms of their risk and prevention of heart disease. The scientific studies have shown that well. So we've got these national cholesterol education guidelines that are compelling doctors to put millions of women on statins when there's no evidence of benefit. And you say, well, how could that be? How could that be? These guidelines came out of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. How could it be that they're corrupt? And the answer is that 9 out of 14 of the experts who wrote these guidelines are getting paid by the drug industry, getting paid by drug companies that make cholesterol-lowering drugs. And it's just another example of how the fundamental values in our healthcare system have been relegated to the marketplace and how we Americans, thinking that we're doing the right things for ourselves and our family, have trust these organizations who have this arcane knowledge about science, when in fact these organizations are just using us, exploiting us, to make more profit. And the, the real sin of this, Charles, is not just that millions of women are getting their cholesterol measured and taking cholesterol-lowering drugs that are expensive and may have side effects, the real sin of it is that we know how to prevent heart disease in women. We know that if we help women to understand that adopting these five healthy habits will reduce their risk of heart disease by 83%, whereas taking a statin will reduce their risk of heart disease by zero. It's the opportunity cost that we're losing when we get this commercially biased information. Because doctors aren't saying to their female patients, look, you're here asking about your cholesterol because you're worried about heart disease. But you and I together need to reframe this question that you're asking. You're asking me how to lower your cholesterol, but I think you're really asking me how to prevent your risk of heart disease. And if that's what you're asking, then the steps that we should take together are to help you to adopt a healthy lifestyle. Now we should understand that's not easy. There's a lot of time pressure. There's a lot of inertia. Most of us have a pretty heavy lazy streak in us and demands on our free time. And yet that's what doctors should be doing with their patients is helping them, educating them, to help them understand cognitively what the science really shows about preventing heart disease, and then acting as a health coach to help their patients to formulate a plan about how they're going to adopt healthy lifestyle changes and then see them back for several visits to help them to implement those plans. But that's not what happens. The time between doctors and patients is being squandered on all this scientific razzle-mataz, getting people to think about magic pills instead of taking responsibility for their own health. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm, I'm just curious if you can give some final words on the whole issue of overdosed America. I sure can, folks. This is the final word. The medical industry is not looking out for your health. You have to. 
And how to do that is fairly simple. Exercise regularly, eat a healthy Mediterranean-style diet. If you're not familiar with that, just go to the Internet and look up Mediterranean-style diet, and you'll get plenty of information. If you're smoking, quit smoking. Don't drink too much, and try to maintain a healthy body weight. But if you exercise and eat a healthy diet, that's the key. So if you do those things, you'll be doing what you can to protect your health. All right. Well, uh, the new book is called Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Dr. Abramson, I do want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share these ideas with your listeners. And you were just listening to Dr. John Abramson discussing Overdosed America. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Here we go. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Bloom. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic healthy or ailing. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're healthy or ailing. Dr. Abramson, you ready to play the game? I am. Okay, uh, item number one, healthy or ailing the iPod? What an interesting question. I think it's both. (laughs) (laughs) I have an iPod and I love it. I listen to books and I um, actually listen to lectures and and some music too. And uh, I find that it contributes to the quality of my life. I think if people are tuning out, if the iPod is serving to pull them away from social interaction, then I would say ailing. So it depends on how people use it. All right. Hopefully they're tuning in, not tuning out. Yeah, right. All right. uh, Number two is reality television shows. I would say ailing. Uh, The average American family has a television on for eight hours a day. This is a passive way to get information, and it's a passive thing to do with your body to sit in front of a television for more than an hour or two a day. So the job of television, it's much like the job of the healthcare industry. The job of television is to produce ever more engaging program material, and the reality shows can be very engaging, but they're not going to help you be healthier. They're not going to help you have better family relationships. They're not going to help you find meaning in your life or develop your talents or realize your potential. So I say ailing. Turn the tube off. All right. Number three, healthy or ailing, uh, American Insurance Group, AIG. Wicked ailing. (laughs) The question is whether we should turn off the ventilator or not. (laughs) These guys are making millions of dollars. They're still making millions in bonuses, and the American people are getting hurt. It's not okay. Wall Street doesn't get it that they, at some point, are going to be held responsible to the impact that they have on average Americans. And I'm hoping that one of the positive things that's going to come out of this terrible financial disaster that AIG played a major role in creating is that there will be a sense that the business community is responsible to the average American and not vice versa. Hmm. Well, we certainly hope. Uh, number four, healthier ailing, uh, Texas Hold'em Poker. 
You're going to have to explain that one to me. Okay, well, it's a popular poker game. I guess we can skip it. <laughs> I try and figure out what's wrong with medicine. I... <laughs> All right, well, num- number five, then, how about celebrated drug Viagra? Viagra, very interesting question. Mostly ailing. I was a family doctor for 20 years. I did see some men who had erectile dysfunction whose lives were compromised by it. And for those folks, Viagra really is a wonderful thing. But there weren't many of them. And what's happened with Viagra, as with so many other drugs, that drugs that are very helpful for a small number of people get marketed to a large number of people. So now Viagra has changed the standard. So whereas men's sexual function has a normal decrease as they get older, now that's become a disease so that a 70-year-old who can't make love like a 20-year-old stud suddenly is taking Viagra because he's got a disease rather than making a peace in his relationship and with himself about the changes in his body and the changes in his relationships and what has meaning. Uh, and I understand that kids carry Viagra in their wallets the same way we used to carry condoms in our wallets when we were kids. And so that adolescents have the idea that they can't perform normally if they don't have Viagra and they're not developing normal understanding of their own body and a normal understanding of what healthy, natural lovemaking is. So I'd say probably about 90% ailing and 10% uh, well. Well, Dr. Abramson, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing the game, and, of course, talking about your book, which is Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine. Thank you very much for your time. Charles, it's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.